You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. This is a special episode kicking off season four of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am so excited and a little bit nervous to bring you uh, my following uh, guests for this episode. Uh, We have with us uh, Valerie Davidson. Uh, She is the president of the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, a statewide tribal health organization that serves all 229 tribes and all Alaska Native and American Indian people in Alaska. Um, We have also Evelina Aki as a nurse manager with the state of Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Uh, the Division of Public Health, and we have Lauren Carroll, and he is a public health nurse with the State of Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, Division of Public Health, and is a Johns Hopkins Bloomberg Fellow in the Master of Public Health Program. I would like to, first of all, welcome you all to the show, and thank you for being here with us today. Um, before uh, we get too much into uh, into into the what we're going to be talking about, I just want to uh, give the audience a little bit of heads up of why we're doing this. Um, really, it comes from my my interests. And Lauren came to me a while back and said, "Hey, what do you think about doing this?" And it just happens to uh, be in line with where I wanted to, or something that I was interested in. And I jumped on board and I said, yes, let's do this. And I really had an interest in um, the native populations of the US and I am very much interested in rural health and how everything is, how everything happens in rural America and how do we get uh, the services that the various populations uh, need to them um, because the expectation of everybody is going to be uh, going to the big cities for their for their healthcare system for their healthcare or anything like that is sort of um, uh, not realistic. So, want to really explore. Alaska seems to be uh, it's such a huge state and the population a bit scattered. So, I thought it would be an excellent way to introduce uh, everybody into the Alaskan. Uh, health system. Um, so I'm going to kick, kick this off with actually uh, Lauren. Uh, like I said, we talked a, a while back and wanted to, uh, you know, I'll, what, what, is, what does the Alaska public health system look like, especially since we've had this year plus uh, in, uh, in, in the COVID world? So I know it's been a huge public health factor. Um, if you can talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, sure thing. You know, I guess first I I would say thanks, Ali, for, you know, inviting me and for inviting us. And thanks for Val and Evie for cutting out time out of your day and week and month to, uh, you know, kind of come together. And, and, you know, that's also kind of 
uh, in my mind, reflective of our public health system in, in Alaska. So when I think about public health and what is that in Alaska, it's in my mind, it's it really is and always has been a, a team effort. Um, so, you know, in regards to the section of public health nursing, that's the uh, uh, state government organization that Evie and I are employed by. We have uh, 16 public health centers statewide, and we got about 158 permanent positions. Um, so we do have a pretty steep vacancy rate right now. And we also have built a, a supplemental workforce to help us through COVID. And so that's about an extra 450 or 500 uh, short-term employees and private contractors uh, that we've had for about the past year. Wow. Um, now, now in, in the Alaskan public health system, especially from a nursing perspective, um, how connected are you? Because with 150 plus uh, in the system and Alaska, again, in my head, when you look at a world map, Alaska doesn't look that big, but you, when you take Alaska and you put it on the U.S. map, it's like it's probably the size of at least a third of the U.S. or something like that, the way it looks like, right? Uh, so it's a pretty huge state. So uh, how stretched thin are you when you're saying, when you need to do a public health rollout? Um, how does, what does that look like? Oh boy, that's a good question. Evie and, uh, and Valerie hop in here. Um, yeah, please. Got a lot to add. But, you know, when thinking about the state of Alaska, we're actually, uh, like you had kind of said uh, a few minutes ago, privately, we're pretty small in regards to population. We're about 700 people. But Texas is a pretty big state, but Alaska roughly about three times bigger. So we got about 660,000 acres, uh, pardon me, square miles. So that's about 0 0.8 square miles per person. So we have a lot of room. And so what that means for population focused healthcare folks like public health nurses, it means that most of our work is based on relationships. Um, and so we've been around since 1893 in some form or other. So we're celebrating 128 years of public health nursing in the state of Alaska. But the interesting thing there um, is we've been partnering the whole time uh, with Alaska Native uh, villages, uh, community members, um, but also uh, organizations like Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. Thank you. Now, Evie, uh, I'm gonna throw this uh, your way. I mean, from, a, from a, you being in a nurse manager role, what does it look like for you to coordinate efforts, not only with among who, among the people that reports to you, but but trying to coordinate efforts along the um, uh, along the state or however you guys um, coordinate like bigger bigger things. Like again, going back to COVID, COVID has been really like when it started the 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 um, federal government kind of pushed it back onto the states and said, hey, you guys need to take care of this. Uh, what did that coordination look like from, from a state level uh, for a state like Alaska? Um, so in, in this area in Southwest Alaska, part of um, Bethel area, there's like 56 villages around um, and Bethel is the hub of the villages. But we collaborate with everyone, like all the village clinics. And then with COVID, we collaborated with YKHC and then 
state epidemiology and other clinics throughout the, the state. And what we did was like, everything was on um, through the computer, like where we had to call um, like telecommuting. And um, I think that's, that was an eye opener, especially for the public health center in Bethel deals with a lot of TB. I mean, TB is still here. So our main focus was TB for the public health center here. And then we're very lucky that we have um, an agency like YKHC that helped us with the COVID contact investigations and um, giving the uh, vaccines because they have more staff and we don't, or I guess everyone has low staff, even they have low staff, um, but they have been such a tremendous help to us. And it kind of forced us to help each other out, especially with COVID. Yeah. And then now we can use that the COVID, um, um, what is that? The contact tracing and everything that we used with maybe trying to integrate TB with that. So, so trying to, uh, so were there, did you guys have to create new tools uh, for COVID or just something like that was, uh, that was made available to you guys? Yeah, so there's um, contact investigations are done on COM, um, through ComCare. And then um, I know that YKH, YKH, uh, had their own um, contact investigations other than what we the state uses um, so it's their it's uh, their own agency I guess depending on what they want to use right um, so it sounds like you know uh, it, it helped build some uh, sort of team coordinations yeah. and communications um, some of those actually were forced people were forced to communicate <laughs> with each other from a now now you meant you mentioned uh, uh uh you know the low staffing what is uh and, and anybody can um jump into this one what are the issues with uh those vacancies that the, the shortfalls in healthcare providers or healthcare workers uh, sounds like uh, i know a lot of states kind of suffer from this but what, what do you think the reason is that for Alaska, because for, for me, again, going back to looking at the rural areas, um, I mean, some of, some, of, some of the people that are in your, that may need that contact tracing, maybe, you know, um, living miles and miles away from you, and they could take that one healthcare worker, like significantly away for a good portion of a day or a couple of days, just to do some of that work. So what do you think is some of the leading causes of that shortfall in the healthcare workers or nurses for that perspective. I don't know, Val, did you want to go first? Sure. Um, so let me um, 
first introduce myself properly. Um, kung ano ka galu ko, mislam ka nanti uyupiyug um tayla kami um anak ka kuyilo kami ng um atak ka sa Porter Street Washington na kami ng um my Yupik names are nuka galak na mislam and my English name is Valerie Davidson and my mother I'm from Bethel. My mother's family is from Guhilok on the coast, which, and the name literally means village with no river, even though it's located on the ocean, um, because our families use the river year round to be able to move from one community to another because there are almost no roads in an area about the size of the state of Oregon. Um, and 58 federally recognized tribes in that region that only has one hospital um, and one public health center. Uh, public health um, public health center that the state operates. Um, so a couple of things are one is that I mean there's a nursing shortage everywhere and has been for some time. And so really um, a part of that is you know people have a choice about where they want to live and where they want to work. And while we're thrilled that um, Evie and, and Lauren are toughies and know how to live in Alaska and where Alaska is our home. Um, not everyone has that same sense of adventure, right? And so, um, so for example, in our villages and the region that I'm from, um, their average village size in Alaska is about 300 to 350 people. And so Bethel is like the New York City of the region because it has 6,000 people. It's huge by our standards. And we still have communities in our many of our villages, 25% uh, of our homes in Alaska still don't have running water. And so literally use a honey bucket. And so when the public health nurses travel to those rural communities, to the villages, um, they may be staying in communities that day that literally have no running water. And um, not everyone enjoys that sense of adventure. I think that's a challenge. Um, the other part is that it's also been a challenge um, making sure that we can train people for these for these jobs, because quite frankly, we know that if we recruit somebody to come from what my mother still calls the United States of America, if we're lucky, they'll fall in love with Alaska. They'll be that typical Alaskan who's now, you know, they came for two years and they were just going to see how it goes. And 30, 30 years later, they're still here, but not everyone's like that. And so what we're trying to do is to make sure that we can train local people to be able to um, to get the training here in Alaska and, and, and get them to, to continue to live here. For example, um, I work at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium and we're a statewide tribal health organization and we serve all 229 federally recognized tribes in Alaska. And we provide comprehensive medical services at the Alaska Native Medical Center here in Anchorage. We do that jointly with South Central Foundation. Um, ANTHC also operates wellness programs. We do disease research and prevention. We do rural provider training and rural water and sanitation systems construction and management. And we also enjoy a strategic affiliation with the Alaska Pacific University, which is our neighbor right down the road. Um, and one of the reasons we do that is because uh, we recognize that um, we need a partner who is agile and can meet our workforce needs now and into the future. So APU, Alaska Pacific University, has, uh, has had a four-year um, BSN program 
Um, and now um, we just started last year in the fall, uh, a two year um, associate degree in nursing. And then um, this fall, I think we're starting a program for um, licensed practical nursing in, in, in Bethel in collaboration with the Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation and Utlead Nagabat. So a part of it is, um, you know, it, it, it's, somebody told me once at a conference, they said, well, you don't have a nursing shortage. There are plenty of nurses. They're just not working for you. And, and so, um, but I, I don't know that I always agree with that, but I, but I, you know, certain places in the country have, competitive advantages. And, and Alaska has done a really, I think, remarkable job of appealing to people who, who love a sense of adventure and, and those kinds of things. But, but I think it can, be, it can be challenging at times. I think from the state's perspective, and I don't want to speak for the state, I'll let Lauren step in here, but our state, um, our state budget has not been stable for some time. And being able to hire people and, and have them expect to be able to keep their jobs and have that job security has been, I think, challenging at best. So Lauren, did you want to jump in? Gee, that's so well, well said, Val, thanks. Yeah, you know, just building on, on your comment about nursing shortage, uh, that's common for us in Alaska, but also nationwide. Also, you know, thanks uh, to the De Beaumont Foundation, we know what that looks like nationwide public health workforce too. Um, so, you know, have been struggling to keep uh, public health uh, positions filled with folks that, that are ready to go and meet minimum requirements for, for that kind of work uh, nationwide, but that's true for Alaska as well. And, you know, from a PHM perspective, and I think Abby, I know she appreciates this one, you know, when thinking about what does it take to, to get someone in a public health nursing position and to keep them in that position it's really complex and it really hinges on this one thing is that it's we're into population focused healthcare uh, as a public health nurse in Alaska. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we've been around for 128 years and most of that time we were focused on individual client based care. Um, so we were like, we've been on snow machines and still are ships, uh, dog subs, you name it to provide individual client based care. But around 2000, to hear the first talk about, hey, PHNs and Division of Public Health, uh, you folks shouldn't be uh, duplicating services or competing for services. Um, so we, as a section of public health nursing, made the official shift to population-focused health care in about 2009 or 2010. And so what does a public health nurse do? We really apply services at three different levels. And those three different levels are systems change work, community-level interventions, and also some individual client-based care. So now getting back to thinking about hiring folks and retaining them, all of us grew up uh, professionally in systems that are based on individuals and perhaps families, um, but there are very few um, educational systems that, that prepare us for public health uh, or population-focused positions. Um, so there might be nurses out there, but we know there's a shortage, but it's, it's even tougher when thinking about uh, even to get someone who can meet the minimum requirements uh, for, for what's really a, a different kind of job. So we're looking for folks that are really strategic thinkers um, and focus on primarily uh, the population. 
And so we also have like what we call an ecological approach. And what that simply means to us is that we recognize that there's a lot of different determinants to the health of a population. And so we're looking at the aggregate data or, or those kinds of, of markers uh, that, that maybe can be shifted in, in a culturally appropriate way to improve the health of, of a population. Yeah. A, a real good challenge. It's probably one of the things that keeps me in the position. Um, <laughs> it, it's a, you know, it, it's a, it's a good challenge to be sure. Yeah. Now, now, as you're talking, like in my in my head, I'm I'm thinking of different ways uh, because when I think about when I think about Alaska, again, I, I have other than my own uh, uh, cruise <laughs> about 12, 12 years, 10, eleven or twelve years ago. Um, it, I when I think about Alaska, and I actually I have a really good friend uh, that actually moved to Alaska many years ago, and she loves it, and she specifically loves it because of really she's very outdoorsy. Like she loves the the outdoor life. And Lauren, just from your own Instagram site of you skiing home or something like that, I think I saw a while back. <laughs> so it is, it is a different style of living. And, and I think there is a population of nurses that would really be interested. And there's even a population because we have nurse a lot of you know we have nurses that go into the Peace Corps we have nurses that go uh, and do travel nursing specifically because they want that change of environment. Um, there is I want and as you're saying from a public health perspective, I, I wonder if there's a opportunity to develop like a residency program uh, for nurses because it sounds like like in my in my past back in my military life. Uh, I went through cold weather medicine training, so uh, so I mean I can I can I can build a, a shelter and survive in the in in the snow for about two weeks. Uh, that's all I've tested myself for, but but it sounds like there there might be an opportunity for you know whether the state or some maybe philanthropic organization to develop a a residency program where there's a transition even from a, even some new grads perhaps from other states that are, that would be looking for new grad positions into public health because i know some of my students and and especially some of my second career students that have left another position and have gone through an accelerated program um, really are looking for rural health and they're looking they're not looking to move into the big cities even though they're going to school in the big cities so I wonder if there's a there's an opportunity for something like that if there's funding, like or a grant or a pilot study. I think that would be fantastic um, to teach them how to actually do some of those things. Like, hey, what do you do when you go into a community without running water, right? Um, because I think there is a there is a sense of adventure, especially maybe among some younger uh, uh, individuals that don't that aren't tied down by anything other than they're looking to get into the profession because in my, in my head, I'm like, I want to do that, except uh, I have a wife and kids and family and I'm sort of stuck, not stuck, uh, but I'm, I'm geographically, I can't, I can't necessarily move, but I think it's, it sounds, it, it, it has a little tingling sensation for me when, when people say, Hey, there's this, there's an adventurous side because I'm not very good with four walls type of organizations, even though I, I have been, um, so, so I think there's a lot of opportunity and now, I, and, and so the question, I guess I'm trying to, trying to, uh, put together in my head is, uh, what is the state or any other organization within the state doing to recruit, um, 
the nursing or or the healthcare workers that it needs, other than what was mentioned with the partnership with with the with the um, with the university, that's already there. But from you know, because like I said, there are pockets within the U.S. that were we have like too many nurses and we don't know what to do with them, especially from a new grad position. I can tell you, like in Los Angeles, we have issues with getting our, our, especially the new grads hired on just because there is, there's so many people just come here because it's the big city. But again, some of the people that are studying here are looking to go elsewhere. Um, so what is the state or any other organization doing to recruit? You know, um, maybe I'll start and I, I know Evie's got um, a lot to add too, but you yeah, know please. what, you know, a wise guy once told me uh, the only way to get experience is to get experience. And the reason that I mentioned that is, you know, in a world of population focused healthcare, we very much understand that most people don't have a history of population focused healthcare. So um, what we have internally is actually uh, positions, <coughs> excuse me, positions that go hand in hand with a training program to get folks up to where we want them to, to perform at, at an expert level. And so um, specifically, what I'm talking about is that we have an entry-level public health nurse one position, and, and it's flexibly staffed to a public health nurse two, and then a three uh, like myself. And, um, you know, Evie here, one of the many reasons I like working with Evie, and it's a long list, um, besides her very good sense of humor, is, um, you know, Evie's actually been with the state for about six months longer than I have. And I've been with the state for about eight years and uh, about eight and a half years almost. And so what that means in our system is Evie has trained a, a lot of brand new public health nurses and brought them through our comprehensive orientation program. Um, I don't know, Evie, if you wanted to comment or share what that kind of looks like and feels like in Bethel. Um, so I, I, I can just tell you what, how I started, like um, I graduated from the nursing program here and it was an ADN program. And then I wanted to get my skills all set before I came to public health. I've always wanted to come to public health. And that was one of the um, reasons why I came here. And I, one of the um, previous uh, managers that was here she would call me like every week or something or send me an email and bug me to come over here but um I think it's because I was from here and she knew that I I knew a lot of people here I grew up in this area and I would definitely stay here and I think it really helps um, that we have this ADN program here. Um, and a lot of the um, girls that graduate or girls and boys that graduate from um, the program here, they tend to go to um, YKHC to get more experience and then our skills, their nursing skills um, up to speed, I guess. And then they start looking elsewhere and this is, I think this is where they come, public health. And just to let you know, my daughter graduated as well from the 
nursing program here. And now she's the um, charge nurse at YK. I was trying to recruit her, but she wants to stay over there. <laughs> so, um, uh, so yeah, but it sounds like, I mean, for, for, from my perspective, as I'm thinking about this, uh, um, uh, I, I don't think enough people know about you. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I, I like to, I, I'd like to think I'm, I, I kind of know what's going on everywhere, even, even Hawaii, just because uh, I, I have friends that, that work in that system. I don't think enough people know about opportunities in Alaska and what Alaska has to offer, offer. And we guys need some like commercial Alaska commercials with a with a nursing twist on it <laughs> for for the adventure RNs out there. Hopefully, this podcast will get you guys uh, a few nurses. I think that would be fantastic. Um, now, I wanna I wanna kind of switch gears a little bit because I know uh, we we mentioned Alaska. Just there's so many different populations in Alaska, um, and there's a whole cultural component, and especially with the Alaska native population. Um, how is uh, public health uh, in what or what does the healthcare system look like, especially when we talk about um, uh, the various cultures that exist within the state? Uh, and I know Val, maybe you can you can you can uh, start this off because you are um, you you're you're working that in that arena right now. Sure. So a couple of things. One is, um, so I used to work at the state. I worked at the state for four years and I've worked in tribal health for 16 years. And what I've seen over and over and over again is that when tribes, when the state and the federal government work together, we have much better outcomes. And we certainly, we've seen that every day and we certainly have seen that during the pandemic with regard to testing, um, vaccine allocations, deployment, messaging, et cetera, um, has made all of the difference. And, you know, it just constantly reinforces um, my belief that people really will do the most amazing things under the most impossible of conditions, as long as we have the right reasons. And children and families and communities are always the right reasons. And the great thing about Alaska is that it's still a place where, you know, if your snow machine breaks down or your boat breaks down, people stop and ask to see if you need help and they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that you make it. And that wonderful Alaska spirit applies to this, to this work that we do too. Um, and so just to give you a sense, I'm going to introduce you to the, the tribal health system a little bit. Um, just to give you a sense, um, in Alaska, all care that used to be provided by the federal government through the Indian Health Service is now provided through collectively the Alaska Tribal Health System. And the Alaska Tribal Health System really is a um, uh, affiliation of 25 different co-signers who each negotiate a common compact with the Secretary of the, U of the US Department of Health and Human Services. And collectively, um, uh, well, so each organization really is geographically distinct um, and each organization is autonomous um, and there are 25 and um, they may be an individual tribe or they may be a larger tribal organization like 
Um, Evie was mentioning the, uh, the Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation, YKHC, provides services on behalf and under the authority of 58 federally recognized tribes um, and serves a region approximately the size of the state of Oregon um, with no roads connecting any communities and one hospital in that entire region. But collectively, so there are, there are 24 additional co-signers to the compact. Um, collectively, the tribal health system has about 12,000 employees wide. And just to put that in perspective, um, the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, where I used to work, um, has about 3,500 employees. So on a scale, the tribal health system um, is, is larger. Um, but but the services are are much more they're much more than just public health. Um, but but the same we have the same interests we have the same priorities. We're focused on population health. We're focused on wellness and prevention. Um, huge focus on immunizations, etc. And and there are times in our past um, and also recently where as that state budget fluctuated up or down the tribal health system and the state public health system really flex back and forth to make sure that individuals in a community basically um, are, are, are continue to be, to be able to receive care. Um, but we do definitely have some unique challenges in Alaska. Um, you know, despite all of this great work that happened in this incredible collaborations, um, Alaska Native people here in Alaska really were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. We were more likely to get sick, we're more likely to die. Our mortality rate was four times that of the white population in Alaska. Wow. And a large part of that is simply because of um, the lack of access to clean water and sanitation facilities. And we still have 32 communities in our state that don't have running water another 17 communities um, where only some of the homes in the community are, are, um, are connected to a, a, a reliable water source. And so, um, so really Alaska couldn't do it without the tribes playing a role, without the state paying a role and without playing a role and without the federal government playing a role. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about Alaska is that while we are geographically large, our population is relatively small, so we know each other. And if, you know, if something's not happening in one part of the state, oh my gosh, there's something happening here, there's an outbreak there, people rally really, really quickly um, to come together to make sure that people have those resources. And we have a saying that, you know, when you grow up in a village, it doesn't matter whether it's 40 below or 40 above, you still have to get up in the morning, you pack your water, you chop your wood, and you do whatever it takes to be able to um, help help yourselves and help each other to make it through the winter. And it's that same mentality of, you know, people check in with each other all the time. Are you guys doing okay? This is what we're starting to see in our region, in our community. This is what we're seeing in our facility. What are you seeing in yours? And um, you tell one person in one community on one teleconference, sometimes it felt like during the pandemic, it was around the state in less than 15 minutes, which is a really good thing. 
Oh, that's amazing. Um, now, when you when you talk about, uh, and I never thought, uh, uh, you know, in my, again, I'm I'm, I, it's really from my own ignorance. Uh, <laughs> um, but when we talk about no running water uh, in in so many different communities, in my head, it's all always been again, like what's on TV of oh look these. This one person, you know, like those reality shows where they go and they build out in the middle of the woods and they, I mean, like, it's like, okay, they don't have running water, but to like, to think of actual communities of people uh, not having running water in the U.S. Now, um, it's sort of mind boggling for me. Uh, a lot of things are mind boggling. The fact that we have homelessness anywhere in the U.S. is mind boggling. And we have hungry children is mind boggling, but, um, but it, now, is this is this uh, the fact that there's no running water? Is this uh, I don't want to even call it. Is, is this by choice? But how? What are the challenges in getting running water to those communities from an infrastructure perspective? Well, I'll tell you that no one chooses to not have running water. Right. Exactly. Um, so, so one of the challenges is um, just the the, sh- the cost of being able to build that infrastructure in rural communities and just transportation. You right. can't drive to any of those communities. Mm. So you have one chance and that's to get it on the first barge of the year that goes around the Aleutian chain from Seattle or, you know, Anchorage around the Aleutian chain and up to up the river, around the ocean, upriver to your home community. And, you know, just to give you a sense of the cost of things of that transportation ads, like a gallon of milk, I think is $9. And that's if you're lucky in a community, a hub community, a big community like Bethel, um, where you actually can get fresh milk. Um, the rest of it is powdered and canned in most communities. So, um, so, so there, there are a couple of things that are out there that um, one is the federal rules that decide, well, we can't fund this sanitation facilities project in this community because it costs too much. It doesn't, it's not economically feasible. And, and I hope that folks understand that when, when people say things like that, what they're saying is that what they're really saying without saying the words is that we're not worth it. Right. Our lives don't matter. And, and if you look at the health impact, I mean, constantly during the pandemic, we heard over and over and over again, wash your hands um, constantly and imagine being a parent with little kids and knowing that you couldn't do the one thing that would most likely keep your family safe. Um, and you know, we, we ANTHC and the CDC did a study a number of years ago about the impacts of, on health of, commu- of infants in communities without adequate sanitation facilities and found that infants in communities without adequate sanitation facilities are 11 times more likely to be hospitalized for respiratory infections and five times more likely to be hospitalized for skin infections. And it's easy to get lost in those numbers, but effectively, Um, What that meant is that one out of every three babies in a community without running water can expect to be hospitalized. But again, these communities don't have hospitals and we don't have roads. So every time that happens, that baby needed to be medevaced out of that community. If you're lucky and you got a cheap medevac, it's about $50,000. But typically $100,000, $125,000, up to $500,000 dollars for that one medevac to be able to address that need. And so 
when we talk about population health issues and, and keeping people safe, it is way more than just what you would expect to see in other places. Yeah. I, I, and as you're, as you're, uh, you know, I'm, as you're saying this, I'm like all, all the things we take for granted living in big cities uh, are just the fact that my Amazon delivery is a day late. I get kind of peeved, but, <laughs> but, but thinking about some of these communities and you're right, there, it is, it is uh, actually, I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day of the value that we place on human beings and uh, when things like this, they, as you're mentioning, like, oh, it's not economically feasible. It really has nothing to do with the economic feasibility, but having, it's more of a, and it's not even a having having a privilege or something like that, but it's sort of like, it's humanity, taking care of humanity, taking care of each other, something like running water or, you know, uh, anything like that, that should be just a given that everybody has access. Uh, but unfortunately it doesn't, um, I'm, it's mind-boggling. I'm thank you for sharing for sharing this because I'm um, yeah. It's things that we don't normally think about, um, but but there's a there's a population of individuals that are actually living through this day in and day out. Um, now, um, from a COVID perspective, uh, and you mentioned you know things like even running water uh, not being available for so many communities. From a vaccination perspective, I just briefly looked at numbers and I saw uh, the uh, um, uh, the native communities are doing better with vaccinations <laughs> than the rest of Alaska. What are, what are the challenges and what's worked and what hasn't worked trying to get vaccinations out uh, to um, decrease uh, decrease the impact on this on the population? And maybe we'll start with maybe we'll start with uh, uh, Evie uh, and work work our way around. So what um, worked well is that when in the villages there's um, with the vaccinations, I feel like um, there's a good system with the tribal entities and between them and the hospital here, there's like a good system going there that where they um, have people sign up. And then as, as the list goes on, when there's enough people and they send out like um, vaccine, people who, vac who are gonna vaccinate the village. Um, but the charter is expensive, so they have to wait until there's like enough people um, to send these uh, the vaccinations out to the villages. Um, but all the health aides in the villages have been trained on um, giving the different vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna. Um, and there's like a time limit between those um, vaccinations. So that you have to go out there quickly or the vaccines will be wasted. And um, those, those were some of the challenges in some villages where the, uh, the weather um, got bad and we couldn't go out. So, um, um, but other than that, 
we definitely use the vaccines here in Bethel if the planes didn't go out. Yeah. Now, now you have you guys uh, moved on the on the Johnson and Johnson also, uh, or um, has that been has that worked better uh, if you have used that? Um, so yeah, Johnson and Johnson has been used, but I, I think there's there was a hold for a little bit, and then I think they're using it now. I'm right. not sure where they are. On, I feel like YKHC has been using more of the Moderna vaccine in the villages because it's so much of that, the time limit that you have to use the vaccine, that that is the one that has been um, more effective to use in the villages. Yeah, yeah, just 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 from a, from a, from a timing perspective and the fact that you have to keep the Moderna and the, uh, and the Pfizer one so cold um, and there's a time limit. The Johnson & Johnson just seems to be the more practical, perhaps, vaccine for some of these uh, villages. Lauren, uh, how about how about from your from your perspective on the vaccinations? Oh, Val, go ahead. You're you're ready to chime oh, in. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, please. So, so I would say a couple of things. I mean, not only um, so so the thing that made such a difference in Alaska really both in testing supplies, but also in vaccinations is this, this partnership between, again, the state, the tribal health system, and also the federal government, mostly between the tribal health system and the state. And there was a task force that met every single week and sometimes every single day. And one of the things that made a difference was the, the commitment to, it was equity not equality that mattered in the distribution of supplies. And so, you know, making sure that this, based on population, the number of people, that wasn't necessarily going to cut it. And that there were communities that were especially vulnerable, communities where it was harder to get to, communities that were isolated, communities that have already um, disparate health status. It was a lot more, it was important to get to those communities quickly. And really, um, you know, it was also about, you know, coordination and communication across Alaska. And I will say that relationships um, across Alaska, as I said before, uh, are well known. People have known each other for years and we maximize those relationships at every single opportunity. And, you know, looking at, you know, are there disproportionate potential impacts on a particular population? And if that was yes, then, okay, then what can we do to make sure that we get them additional supplies and what's happening? Um, and the other piece is it's also like, for example, we made, um, we made priorities for vaccinations for things like um, if a community had some of their last language learners or their language speakers or culture bearers, they were among some of the first people to get vaccinated because losing one person in that community meant mm. a language that had existed since time immemorial may be gone. Um, and so really it was about making sure that, um, that, that, that we stayed in constant communication so that we knew, okay, there's bad weather in Guiginluk and that means the, the vaccine is sitting at the, at the airport and it's gonna go bad if we don't get it out in the next however many hours, then swap that out 
redeploy that to the to another facility in Bethel or to another community to make sure that 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 can still be utilized. Um, yeah, Lauren, did you have any others to add? Sorry. No, I, that's very well said, both of you. I guess the you know the only things that I would add is we've kind of had a historical context that's led us to a place where we can enjoy these partnerships and community, family, and individual outcomes. What I mean specifically is, you know, the state's constitution, you know, became effective in 1959, outlines that it's the state's responsibility, the public, the health of the public is the state's responsibility. But as Val is outlining there, um, we couldn't do that without the, our existing partnerships. And then kind of fast forwarding a little bit um, further, closer to the future, thinking about how in 2001, uh, you know, 9-11, that really set the stage for us to advance emergency preparedness um, to strategic priorities. So what's that mean? Is it means in our world of public health nursing, we really started to train public health nursing um, in regards to emergency preparedness. Um, so things like a point of dispensing, uh, we really got started on that kind of work, that kind of planning around 2008 or even before. And then in 2009, of course, H1N1, as a state, certainly as a nation, we were able to carry forward a lot of lessons learned. And, and I think Valerie said it best there, you know, you know, having access to vaccine is one thing, but, but really focusing on health, uh, health equity or, you know, those initial stages when there were only 50 doses, um, as, as a team, we really answered the question, who needs it first in, in order to preserve and protect our communities? Yeah, I think those are the biggies um, for me. Yeah, it, it sounds very, I, yeah, yeah, please go I ahead. Add, I'm sorry, can I add one more thing? I was recently um, on this other um, discussion where, where people were talking about, you know, who are the trusted messengers? And somebody came on and said, we need to stop using that term because it feels so transactional. What we're talking about is relationships and a long-term relationship so that, you know, if somebody calls and says, Hey, I need help. It's not, it's not transactional. It's that relationship. And so it's things like, I mean, I'm on this call today or this podcast today because Lauren sent me something on Facebook Messenger and and we have that relationship and and I know him and I trust him. Um, but it's not transactional. It's it's that long-term relationship. And and that's where and that's the benefit of that's so if you're a person who's interested in 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 working in Alaska and being a part of something like that where where the people you work with you know, become family and you have an opportunity to make incredible, incredible improvements in the health of individuals and families and communities and a whole population. And you have a sense of adventure. Come on over, come on over to Alaska. We, we, we need you. That, that's beautifully said. I wish we could end the podcast on that because I think that should be its own. <laughs> that's your commercial right there. That's your commercial right there. Um, has there been any um, any vaccine hesitancy? Because uh, I know it's just from a from a logistics perspective for me, it's 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 mind blowing of the hoops you guys are jumping through to make sure the communities are getting 
the vaccines and everybody ha- there's equity in the distribution and you're you're taking it to a whole another no- level from a from a uh, preservation of cultural history in in some of that distribution uh so is has there been any hesitancy or challenges from from that perspective from a community or individuals of why they are not being vaccinated because i know like it happens everywhere else in the u.s just from a alaska perspective i I think every you know every community is different and and so we always say if you know one tribe in alaska you know one tribe in alaska because (laughs) i mean alaska is so big we used to have four time zones i mean literally four time zones in alaska um so I would say that generally what we've seen is we have much higher vaccination rates um, in communities that are smaller in our tribal communities. And that's pretty simple. The health aid knows everyone, knows every baby born in that community, and they know where to find us. Right. Um, in some of our larger population centers like Anchorage or even beyond Anchorage, the Valley, um, people have some really interesting views about vaccinations, which I think are really unfortunate. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, having all that information out on social media, I think sometimes some of that information isn't necessarily accurate. And so, but I read it online. And, And so a lot of that effort has been lately about really making sure that we talk to, um, the community doers in the in a community who are the people who they're not it's not necessarily their job to do this but that person in a meeting where when somebody speaks everybody stops and listens that's the community doer who has that um credibility who says vaccinations are important is really how we reach people it's really about relationships yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like it goes back to that same relationship concept that you mentioned before. Uh, and it's true. And I think, and I think uh, we, need to, we need to be building definitely more of those relationships everywhere, not just, uh, but uh, it makes sense. Um, so uh, I appreciate this. This has been, this has been incredible. Uh, and I appreciate all of the knowledge you guys have shared. Um, anything else uh, you would like to share before we wrap uh, this uh, this episode up. We'll start with uh, with Evie. I don't have anything to add. Right, well, thank you again, Evie. I appreciate I appreciate what you've shared, uh, Lauren. You know, I, I guess when when thinking about pandemic response and the PHN's role, one thing that's a little bit harder to see or uncover um, are these core competencies of public health nursing practice and scope and standards of practice. And so these are the kinds of things that, that govern or guide how it is that we go about our job um, mm-hmm. in, in our presence in a community. And it, these are kind of what I kind of think of one of the successes of, of, our, of our contribution in the pandemic. An example might be, um, we never um, enter into a village uh, without an invite. And so kind of what, what that means to me and us is um, a culturally appropriate um, approach to population-focused healthcare, and it, that plugs into um, building relationships and maybe even put, um, rebuilding potentially tentative relationships. Because at the end of the day, um, and that's kind of what counts, and that's what's going to move us forward. Great, thank you so much. And Val. So one thing, I, I guess one thing I would add is that um, 
You know, there was a lot, of, a lot more flexibility during the pandemic um, from public health agencies and just a whole host of folks. And, you know, I think what that, what that showed us is, you know, what is possible when some of that flexibility exists? And, and my philosophy is, you know what, if it worked well during a pandemic, maybe some of those things we ought to apply every day. Um, and, and those flexibilities really show us that when, when it's important, we can, we can do those things. And so what are those barriers that exist to when it's not a public health crisis that, that'll, that, that we should implement every day that will allow us to be able to continue working together more effectively? Um, because, I mean, I'm going to keep working with Lauren and, and Evie um, because we, we know each other, but everyone in this country should have that opportunity. And the last thing, one more time, if you're a nurse, come on over to Alaska. We would love to see you here. Um, we, we promise you an adventure and lots of excitement and an opportunity to make a real difference. Thank, Brianna, you, so. thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I appreciate you, uh, uh, all of you, uh, sharing your time and your, uh, and your knowledge and your wisdom. Um, uh, I'm better for it. If for, I always tell my tell tell my uh, colleagues, I'm like I only speak to people I want to speak to. Uh, so it's 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 my podcast. I get to speak to who I want to speak, and I'm and I'm always I'm always better off for the people I speak to. So thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, you have been listening to the RN Mentor Podcast. This has been a special episode. Uh, of season four and I look forward to bringing more guests to you as we kick off this season thank you so much you've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host Ali Taya please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com that's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.